All right, if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter 24. There's a story that we're all familiar with. Um, we're going to pick up the story in verse 13, but after Jesus' resurrection, um, Luke chapter 24, starting with verse 13. And it's on your notes. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about these things that had happened, disciples. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But when their eyes were kept from recognizing him, and he said to them, What is this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. One of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, the man who was a prophet, mighty indeed, and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and beside all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning. And when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said he was alive. Some of those who were there with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said. But him they did not see. And He said to them, Oh, foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scripture the things concerning himself. Now, in Jewish lingo, the Bible is divided between three books. Um, there's the book of Moses, which is what we would call uh, the Pentateuch, which is the Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, the first five books of the Bible. And so when the writer here is saying Moses, it's not just beginning with Exodus. He's saying that he began at the beginning. And so the prophets would be all of the, all of the prophets that we know. And then the third portion, which wasn't mentioned here, is the writings, which is Psalm, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. But here he's saying that... that the, Jesus walked them through the scripture and showed how all the scripture spoke of him. Now that, in general, is a great hermeneutic to use whenever you're reading the Old Testament. We look for how does it speak of Jesus. A good example of that would be the story of David and Goliath. Um, I've heard in my life probably a hundred sermons, literally, where the preacher says, okay, you're David, and Goliath is all the troubles that come up against you in your life, and with God's help, you can take that rock, and you can fling it and knock your troubles down. That's a weak hermeneutic. That's a weak way to study the Bible, because you know what? Sometimes if I'm flinging the rock, I miss. But if we look at, for Jesus in that story, and Jesus is David, Goliath is mine and yours sin coming against him. 
We, if we want to find ourselves in this story, we're the children of Israel hiding in the corner going, ah, help us, somebody. And so Jesus comes up with the Father's help. He's going to win every time. And so Jesus takes and walks them through, pointing out himself. And so we are stepping off for the summer, and we're going to look at the, uh, the covenants throughout the Old Testament and the final covenant. The new covenant. And we're going to see Jesus woven through the Old Testament. Now, there are multiple covenants in, in, in the Bible. Um, and those covenants are not the central theme of the Bible. I think we see that the central theme of the Bible is that God spoke. Hebrews chapter 1 says, and in the... In former times, in past times, God spoke to us through the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by a son. And so, the, the whole thrust of the Bible is God breaking into human history. But the covenants are... Well, let's just read the quote here. The covenants are not the central theme of Scripture. Instead, the covenants form the backbone of the Bible's meta-narrative, and we'll come back to that, and thus it is essential to put them together correctly in order and accurately uh, to discern accurately the whole counsel of God. Now, the meta-narrative is, what is the, you know, you have a micro, something small, and then meta's big. So if you want to understand how is it that God is working through the sweep of human history, that meta-narrative, that, that big picture look at the story, then covenants are a great way to see how God has communicated throughout the Old Testament. There are multiple covenants. Uh, there are the, the one that we're going to look at today, which is, is some call the covenant of works, some call the, the Adamic covenant, the covenant with Adam. The one next week we'll look at the, the covenant that God had with mankind through Noah, the Noetic covenant. And then we'll see the covenant with Abraham. And then we'll see the covenant with, um, with the children of Israel, with the law. And then uh, finally we'll look at the covenant, the new covenant. Um, that Jesus, when he was uh, giving the Lord's Supper, said, This wine is representative of the new covenant in my blood. And so we're going to look at all of those, and we're going to see how God, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever, but we're also going to see how God interacts with humankind. So covenants, let's define covenants as we get started. A covenant is a chosen relationship in which two parties make a binding promise to each other. A covenant is different from a contract because it's a personal relationship which both parties voluntarily enter into. A better example than a contract would be a marriage covenant because both parties in a marriage covenant are agreeing together that they're going to do something. I love doing weddings because, uh, in fact, I, I think I mentioned here that I, I had a, a young lady come to me who was not a believer. Uh, didn't claim to be, didn't grow up in the church. She just want, wanted, and I, I will quote her, she said, I just wanted a real preacher to marry me. Now, I would have, I believe that, that the marriage covenant is a covenant between two people together with God. I don't think that the covenant is necessarily between the two people, it's between those two people and God, saying that we are going to become one flesh. And so, 
I said, I, don't, I won't do a wedding unless you're willing to go through uh, uh, several weeks of marriage counseling. And she said, oh yeah, we'll do that, that's fine, which gave me a great opportunity to share the gospel. Um, and so I married them. Uh, now, I will not marry a, a, a person that's an unbeliever who doesn't have any claim to, the, to Christianity and a believer. Uh, because the Bible make, is explicitly says that that's wrong. So I wouldn't participate in that. But there's nothing, there's no biblical reason for me to say that I wouldn't marry two people who are non-believers. In fact, that gives me an opportunity to speak into that marriage. And I to- told them, I'm not a counselor. I'm not, uh, I'm, I don't have an LPC. I'm here to tell you what the Bible teaches about marriage. And so we spent... Uh, a lot of weeks together just looking at how does the Bible teach us a marriage is supposed to be to, to, to be. And that, that they may have taken that and ran with it or not. But I believe that that marriage is a, is a covenant that you step into. And that, that's a beautiful picture of the covenants that God has. Both parties agree. And so kind of the premise of, of a covenant is that um, there are... There are things that are blessings or the, the positive side. And then the, there's the negative side. Now, none of the covenants are exactly alike. That's, they're, they're different. Some covenants in the Bible, the language indicates, and you can see that the covenant is between a person of higher authority and a person of lower authority. We have biblical examples. An example of that would be the Israelites in a covenant with the Gibeonites, a covenant between two people of equal stature. And the wording is different. The agreements are different. All of the, the covenants that we're going to look deeply into are the, the covenants that are established between a person of higher authority and a person of lower authority. We clearly are the people of lower authority, and God is the person of higher authority. Now, uh, some scholars have taught that covenants always presuppose an already existing relationship. The, the, the story I mentioned before with the Gibeonites showed that that's not the case, because the Israelites didn't know that they were entering into a covenant. Covenants have both conditional and unconditional elements. There's some parts of it that say, if you do, conditional means, if you do these things, then this is what's going to happen. If you do these things, this is what's going to happen. And then there are some aspects of covenant that are unconditional. No matter what you do, this is what's going to happen. In the Noetic covenant, God said, I am never going to destroy the earth again with a flood. We can't be wicked enough to make God go against what he said he would do. So that's an unconditional aspect of that covenant. God's not going to destroy the earth again with a flood. And every time you walk outside and see a rainbow, you can be reminded of that. I have always made it a habit with my own children and any other kids that I've got around that if we see a rainbow, I go, what is that? And they, they'll say, it's a rainbow. And I'll say, why is that there? And, and I, I made sure that my kids could always say, I would always say, whose rainbow is that? And they would say, that's God's rainbow. Why is it there? Because God promised that he would never again destroy the earth with a flood. I wanted to make sure. And I still do that. I was around a kid the other day, like at Walmart or something. I mean, it wouldn't have been Walmart. But I was somewhere, and I was a kid I didn't even know. And I said, what's that? And they said, it was a rainbow. And I said, whose rainbow is it? I, uh, I don't know. And so that gave me a chance to go, that's God's rainbow. He put that rainbow there for a reason. And so... Every time you see a rainbow, you can be reminded of the unconditional aspect of that part of the covenant. Now, in some covenants, there's a sacrifice to signify it. In some covenants, there's not. In the Davidic covenant, where God told David that your throne would abide forever, there was no sacrifice that was made there. 
And so each covenant has different aspects to it. And we'll look at that, and I think you'll see, for example, in the Abrahamic covenant, how important God meant for that to be. And those covenants, uh, we believe, um, are everlasting. That if God said that it, it's the way something is, that's the way it is. Now, there, our, our brethren who are Presbyterian uh, believe in something called replacement theology, and that suggests that everywhere in the Old Testament where um, the Israel, a covenant is made with God, that God replaced that covenant with Israel with the covenant with the church. I don't hold to that. I think that if God's smart enough to say Israel or to say church, and so that those covenants with Israel are still with Israel. And so we'll see, and lo, many months from now, as we look at our end times study, as we look at eschatology, why I think that those covenants that God made with Israel are still, still stand. That he's still going to honor those. That there's going to be a, a literal physical king in Israel that's from the line of David. And we know him. I hope you do. If you don't, I can introduce you to him. So, um, we'll, we're going to break those down and we're going to look at, at, at those covenants. So, um, let's look at the very first covenant. Now, in the book of Genesis the word covenant is not mentioned. I still believe that that first covenant, the, the Adamic covenant, is a covenant, and I, and I get this from the Bible. In Hosea chapter 6, Hosea is talking about Israel, and he says, but like Adam, they transgressed the covenant. There they dealt faithlessly with me. And so here Hosea believes that between God and Adam there was a covenant. And if you look in Genesis, you'll see that. And we'll kind of look at some of the aspects of that covenant. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. And have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of heaven and over every living thing that moves on the earth. And God said, Behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the face of the earth, and every tree with seed in its fruit. You shall have them for food. And every beast of the earth, and every bird of the heavens, and to everything that creeps on the earth, everything that has the breath of life, I have given every green food for plant. And so it was. And God saw that he, everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And it was evening, and it was morning the sixth day. So here, God is giving very specific commands to Adam and Eve. He's telling them to be fruitful and multiply. He's telling them that you are being provided for, for what you eat, how you're going to, to, to survive. And so in this covenant, God is the initiator of the covenant. And God is the one who's saying, there's only one condition. And we see it in Genesis 2. The Lord took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat it you shall surely die. So the part of the covenant that was conditional was, In the day that you eat it you shall surely die. Now it's important for us to understand that. Because we know that they ate of it. And so, spiritually, we know that they 
died. Um, there's a, a, a group called Cademan's Call, a Christian group, and they have a song that in that song there's a line where it says, God knew my future before I fell dead in the garden. And I think that beautifully sums up what the Bible says happened when Adam ate of that fruit. That he was our representative there. And somehow, in some mysterious way, we through him participated in that sin. Now I had a... uh, Donna told me about a... I guess he's seven... The Landrum's little boy, Jack, came up to her and asked the question, if God is all-powerful, why did he put the tree in the garden in the first place? Out of the mouth of babes. So what would you have told him? Why? But if God is... We, when we did our, our study of theology, God is all-knowing. Um, so he knew they were going to fail the test. And remember in Revelation chapter 6, it's, the Bible refers to the Lamb's book of life. And the whole title of the book is, this, uh, uh, if your name is written in the Lamb's book of life, written before the foundations of the world. So before God ever said, let there be light. Before God ever created anything... There had to be a lamb that was slain, so he knew we would fail. He knew there needed to, would have to be a sacrifice. And the beautiful side of that is that there was a book and your name was already written in it. That is crazy. Today, I got cornered by uh, Peanut here in Glencoe. And he has been on me to transfer my VFW membership from Bunn, North Carolina, to here. And I, so I, I, I was fine. And so he gave me the number of the na- national, and I called and, um, to get my, my VFW number so I could have m- my membership transferred here. And they didn't have my name. And it made me feel a little small. <laughs> well, I joined when I was there. It was, what, 15 years ago? You don't have my name? You don't have to worry about God losing your name. Your name was written in the Lamb's book, which means that you can't do anything to add to God's love for you. And you can't do anything to take away. Because before you were ever born, your name was written in that book of, Lamb's book of life. That is an amazing thing. If you just think about the power of that. And how you're free to serve Jesus. He chose you before he ever said, let there be light. That's amazing. So, yes, it was a test. But a test that he knew we would fail. So what would you tell the little boy? And God answers the question. It's not a hypothetical. In 1 Corinthians, God said, uh, the Bible says... That God is teaching the principalities and powers of his manifold grace and wisdom. So here's the lesson. God, before he ever said, let there be light, knew that there would have to be a sacrifice. 
He is teaching the angels and the demons that he is so powerful and so wise and so graceful, so full of grace, that even a broken, wicked sinner like me, he can save and he can use. See, if there was no sin, if I, there was never a fall, then that's a lesson we would never see as grace. There would be no need for grace. And see, the great conundrum that the Old Testament leaves us with is the Bible says that, that God is slow to anger and full of mercy, and yet He is a just God. Those are contradictory concepts. I just uh, read a, a story today in a, a, a magazine, a law enforcement magazine, that was saying that there's a particular judge in Minnesota, or it was one of the M states, maybe Maine, I, I don't know who, uh, 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 an older man, 70 years old, uh, raped a little boy who was five. And the judge gave the man five years probation. And this particular article was, was saying, how is that just? We need justice. And we all look at the world and there is a lack of justice. And the Bible makes it really clear that God is going to make this world end justly. His wrath is going to fall. But the Bible also says that he's slow to anger and full of grace. How in the world could he reconcile those two things? Here we see in the covenant that he made with Adam. You can have whatever you want. I have provided for your every need. Just don't eat of that tree. And the story doesn't seem to imply that there was hardly any time at all until they're standing around the tree. And Eve is looking at it and seeing that the fruit looks good. That looks good. And so mankind fell... And the way that he reconciled his mercy and his justice is that he came himself and broke into human history and satisfied through his son the justice. The wrath that you and I deserve was poured out onto his son. And so justice is served. His wrath was poured out. Which is why the title of the book is the Lamb's Book of Life. There had to be a sacrifice. The book of Hebrews says that it's not from the blood of bulls and goats that there's forgiveness of sin. So pure blood had to be shed. For the wages of sin is death. God said, in the day that you eat of it, you will surely die. And so since... Adam was our representative. Every day that a human being has lived since then is a grace. I've said this before. Whenever someone comes to me and says, talks about the problem of pain, I always say, to me the bigger problem is the problem of joy. Why is it that Hitler could have a good day? And if you break that down, why is it that I can experience joy? I don't deserve that. 
I deserve the wrath of God for what I've done, the way that I've acted, the way that I raise my fist in God's face and say, I know what you've taught me, but I'm going to do what I want to do. And so instead, instead of me having the wrath, God's grace is poured out in the fact that His Son was humiliated for us. That He took the wrath for us. And so in that, God receives the glory. And we see His manifest wisdom in how He was able to build that out. And we are able to see His grace. And we're able to see what an amazing God He is. It's not a solution I could have come up with, and it's certainly not a solution um, that was expected. Which is why Paul talks so much about the scandal of the cross. And so we see in this first covenant, we see things being set up for the rest of the covenants, for the need for there to be uh, the other covenants. I had, had a a uh, Hebrew professor in seminary that would say that in the first few books of Genesis, we see who God is, and the rest of the Bible is a commentary on that. And next week, as we begin looking, uh, well, next week we'll look at the Noahic co- uh, covenant, but then we'll look at the Abrahamic covenant, and, and we'll see how God has already put together the solution. We see here, remember, as God is starting to Dole out the curses to the serpent, he says, or to the woman, he says, from your seed, someone is coming who will crush the serpent's head and you will bruise his heel. Father God, Lord, we thank you for your word. Lord, I pray as we begin to to, to dig deeply into this idea of covenants, Lord, that you would show us how beautifully you have worked. Lord, we love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.